Good morning. We uh, I have a handout for you this morning. It's pretty basic, so don't get too excited. lots of cords up here. I'm going to attempt not to trip and fall. So we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, um, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 this morning. So uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or you should turn there in your Bibles, rather, and then... uh, And then let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together, Lord, and to to read your word, to study your word um, in, uh, in freedom. We, uh, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be at work, Father, in our hearts and our minds this morning, uh, challenging us, convicting us. Um, and drawing us to Yourself and to Your Your Holy Word. Uh, I pray that You you use me, that they would not be my words, but Your words uh, this morning as we've gathered here together. I pray this in Your precious and Your magnificent name. Amen. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, and <clears throat> this morning, uh, one of the key people in our story is a man named Ezra. Uh, Actually, this morning, uh, we're not even going to look at Nehemiah very much at all. Uh, He doesn't play much part in this story. Mostly it's the interaction between the people of Israel and this man named Ezra. Can someone tell me who Ezra was? Anybody know? He was a priest? That's correct. Anybody else know anything about Ezra? He led the second return back to Jerusalem. That's correct. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. He had returned back to Jerusalem 14 years prior to Nehemiah's return. Um, And he had um, led the second group back. Uh, Now the temple had been built for about 58 years by the time Ezra uh, returned. If you want to take your handouts, if you have your handouts, Flip it over on the back, and there's a little timeline that we can look at together real quick to kind of give you an idea of where we are, what's going on, and what had happened. So, we know that the children of Israel had gone into captivity. About 586 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came, and they, they laid siege to Jerusalem. Um, the, the city was destroyed, the temple was burned, and the people had gone into captivity. Uh, now, this was, this was Israel. Uh, if you remember, Judah, uh, the other half, after they had split, had already been in captivity to the Assyrians for quite some time. Uh, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, and at that point, the two kind of merged back together uh, in captivity. So, uh, in uh, 538 B.C., uh, Babylon was defeated by the Persians uh, under the reign of Sirius the Great. And, uh, and his first year uh, as, as king over all of them and with the, 
the Israelites in captivity. He uh, allowed a group to return from captivity under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest to return back to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple. Now, if you remember, a number of months ago, we went through the minor prophets, uh, and one of them that we looked at was Haggai, and we, we saw this story, the story of the people's return under Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the temple. And if you recall, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then there was opposition, similar to the opposition that Nehemiah saw, but in this case, the people stopped, and they stopped building the temple. And then if you remember, Haggai challenged the people, and he said, why are you building your homes and your paneled houses, making them so nice and beautiful, and my house lays in ruins? And that, at that point, the, uh, the, the children of Israel returned uh, to rebuilding the temple. So in 520 B.C., they started rebuilding the temple. And then four years later, it was completed and dedicated. So then, 58 years later, Ezra returns and leads a second group back to Jerusalem, um, many of them being uh, priests and scribes like himself. Uh, and Ezra returned to Jerusalem. And then 14 years later, we have Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem uh, with the goal of rebuilding the walls. So in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, we first find out about this man Ezra. Uh, even though the book is named Ezra, you don't see him until chapter 7. But here's what it says in chapter 6, verse 7. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was with him. And there went, there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And then verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules to Israel. So Ezra, Ezra was a man that had dedicated his life to the word. He had dedicated his life to the law of the Lord. It says he was skilled in the law of the Lord. It, was something, it wasn't something that he just did um, you know, casually, but this is something that he invested in time and time again and knew the law of the Lord and was skilled in it. Um, my thoughts immediately went to uh, Ethan. Now, if you guys think about Ethan... Ethan is very skilled at writing ridiculous emails, isn't he? <laughs> now, this is something that he has put a lot of time and effort into, and you can tell over the years how this skill has grown. If you received the last email about the, the church Christmas musical, you know what I'm talking about. So Ethan is skilled in this manner. So Ezra was a man that had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And he was skilled in it. He knew it. And it says that he did it and his desire was to teach its statutes and rules to Israel. So as Ezra's returning to Jerusalem, his desire is to teach the people. He wants to teach his nation the law of the Lord. The laws that had been given to Moses so that they too would know them and they too would be able to obey them and to follow them. 
So Ezra has returned to, to, to Jerusalem. And it's been 14 years, 14 years, and Nehemiah has returned. Benji, I have handouts so you can take notes. Right? Got your pen? Keeping you accountable. You said last week you're going to take notes. Okay. So it's been 14 years Ezra, uh, since Ezra had returned. Nehemiah comes. And, uh, and what happens uh, is, is pretty remarkable, isn't it? Nehemiah comes and he, he leads the people. And in 52 days, they rebuild the wall, don't they? That's where we are today. It's been, it's been 52 days. Nehemiah has returned. And together, under the leadership of Nehemiah, the people have come together. Despite opposition, they have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And they are complete. And so what happens next is pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. Um, I, think, I think all of Ezra's hard work over these past 14 years, I don't think he was just sitting around doing nothing. I think his desire was to teach the people... And he was doing that. And I think his hard work is about to pay off in conjunction with Nehemiah. So if we look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So it's the people. The people come to Ezra and they say, Ezra, we need to hear the law. We need to know it. Bring the book of the law and read it to us. I, I think that's awesome. It, wasn't, it, it doesn't seem that it was Ezra that spurred this in their hearts. It wasn't Nehemiah that said, we need to do this. The people gathered and they said, Ezra, we need to do this. What sparked this uh, in the hearts of the people? Why this sudden interest? I mean, the temple had had been there for 70-something years already. They had been offering sacrifices. Ezra had been back. The scribes and priests had been back for, for 14 years. What all of a sudden sparked this interest in the people to know the law? And what's, what's interesting is that this is something they were supposed to do. Every seven years, the people of Israel were supposed to gather together like this and to read the law together. Now, the people didn't know this, and we'll find out that in a minute. So that wasn't the reason they had gathered together. It wasn't because they knew they were supposed to do this. It wasn't out of obligation. I think that the past 52 days for the nation of Israel were one of those life-transforming times. I think that Nehemiah's faith in the Lord and the people seeing that, I think God's faithfulness to them through this time, despite the, the oppression that they faced, um, the, the amazing heart of the king to allow this to happen, God's faithfulness to them to see them through this, I think... Um, that the endurance that they experienced through these trials, that the strength that they received through the Lord as they rebuilt the walls and as they, they saw it come to be, together and to, to be completed, I think the fact that they had come together as a nation and done this together, united, I think the people are just changed. I think their hearts are 
are, are softened, that God's faithfulness has really been at work in them. I believe that God used Nehemiah and the walls to bring the people back to himself, something that doesn't seem like it's a spiritual thing, and the Lord used it in the nation of Israel. I think they had stepped out of the routines of their life, and for 52 days they were challenged, they were united, and they triumphed. And they saw how God had demonstrated His faithfulness to them every step of the way. And so they get to the end, and the walls are built, and the people are excited, and they say, we want more of this. And they say, Ezra, we need to know what God wants us to do. We want to be faithful to Him. So let's look at, at Nehemiah. Again, chapter, chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1 again. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, um, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra comes and he stands before the people. They're all gathered together. And it says that he read the book of the law from early morning till midday. I mean, we're talking probably like six hours here, people. That the, the, the people stood there and listened. And it says that they were attentive. They were listening. They were re- understanding and receiving the book of the law. It says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood... I'm going to um, slaughter these because I'm terrible at pronouncing names. Um, hooked on phonics did not work for me. Um, <laughs> So, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll just call this first guy Matt. Shem, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, uh, Mishaiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, um, Hash, Zechariah, and Meshelam were on his left hand. So, these men are standing up there with Ezra. And it says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, And he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. So Ezra comes, he stands before the people, he opens the book of the law, and what does he do? He prays, he prays to the Lord. He he gives praise to the Lord in his prayer. And the people respond, Amen. And they fall down to their faces and they worship the Lord. They worship the Lord their God together. It says that then also Jeshua, Benai, uh, Sherebai, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hobai, Meshai, Keltai, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law of God clearly 
and they gave them the sense so the people could understand the teaching. So the people were gathered. Ezra was reading from the book of the law. We're talking about the Pentateuch here. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, it may have been more than that, Joshua, but we know at least that the book of the law uh, most oftentimes referred to the Pentateuch. But he's reading from this, and it says that these men were, were scattered around the people, you know, because we're talking about thousands of people gathered here. Ezra would read the law. Perhaps these men would then recite what Ezra had said so they could hear it. And then they would explain the law to the people. Uh, there where it says that they read from the book of the law of God clearly, that word clearly in the Hebrew could also be translated paragraph by paragraph. So the idea there is that it seems like Ezra would, would read a section, he would stop, these men would then either recite it to the people if they were too far away to hear, perhaps, um, but then they would make sure that they, they understood. It says that they gave them the sense so the people could understand the teaching, that they explained it. They stopped and explained to the people, this is what God's saying. This is why uh, God is saying this. Do you understand? You know, perhaps they took questions. No, what, what does this mean? And so the, they spent this whole morning gathered together reading the book of the law and taking the time to make sure the people understood what they heard. So, chapter uh, 8, verse 9. They had read the book of the law. They had gathered together. They had understood what they uh, were reading. It says in verse 9, it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all of the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. So the people, as they're, they're hearing the word of God, are, are convicted. They begin to weep, understanding that they are, are sinful, that they have not been following the law of the Lord. And it, it brings them to tears. But, but the Levites and Ezra and, and Nehemiah say to the people, Don't weep, for today is a holy day. He says to them, Go, go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is a holy day to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, this is the the first day of the seventh month. And this is a a feast for Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Trumpets. Um, The... The Jewish people call it Rosh Hashanah, if you've heard that phrase before. It's the Feast of Trumpets. It's the first day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23, uh, verse 23, it says this. says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So this is a holy day. So the, the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah say to the people, don't weep, this is a holy day before the Lord. You need to, to go back to your homes. You need to, to eat together. Uh, if there's 
those around you that don't have, you know, give food to them so they can eat together and, and rejoice in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So in verse 11, it says, So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all of people went their way and to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. So the nation of Israel had gathered together. They heard the word. It had affected them. It had convicted them. And they return home by the encouragement of the priests and the Levites. They said, go home, fellowship with one another, eat, drink, be merry, pretty much. And so they do that. They return home and they rejoice in the fact that they had heard the law of the Lord and they had understood it. They, they sat together and they said, now we know what the Lord wants us to do. They understood the word. So what do the people do next? Verse 13. It says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests, the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So they, they gather together again the second day to continue this. And they found it written in the law of the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns in Jerusalem. Go to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees, and make booths, as it is written. So the people continue to read the, the, the law, and they find out that this feast is about to come. The Feast of Booths, they had, they had read the law, they had heard it, they had been convicted, they allowed it to change their hearts, they rejoiced that they knew and understood it, and immediately they decide, I'm going to put this into practice. Let's, let's do what the law says. It's the seventh month, and on the 15th day of the month was this festival that they were supposed to um, have called the Feast of Booths. Um... There it is. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. Um, <laughs> Leviticus 23 again, 33, where the Lord talks about the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, for seven days is a feast of booths to the Lord. Verse 42, he says, And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So for seven days, the people of Israel were supposed to have this festival. They were supposed to come together. And it said, um, if you remember the first passage in Leviticus where it says that the Lord commanded them to read the law. Did I read that? I feel like maybe I didn't read that. Um, 
in Leviticus, the Lord commanded them to every seven years that they were supposed to read the law. I said that, but it was supposed to be at the, the festival of booths. So um, they were supposed to make these little tents pretty much, and they were supposed to sleep in them for seven days. It was this big festival. They would gather every day and read the book of the law. And it was to remind them that the, the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, had wandered in the wilderness and that they had lived in tents and that the Lord had provided for them. Uh, he had given them manna. He had given them water from the rocks. And eventually he brought them into the promised land. And so the people were to remember this time that the nation had dwelled in booths or tents uh, in, the, in the wilderness. And so... They're reading the law and they find out, you know what, this, we're supposed to do this in like, in like 13 days. And so the people, they gather together, they go and get these branches and they build these booths and they do it. They, they recognize uh, the festival of booths and, and they, they come together and they continue to read the book of the law. And so um, verse uh, 16 again, it says, The people went and they brought them and they made booths for themselves each on his roof and the courts and in their courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim and all of the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for the day for from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so and there was great rejoicing Day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the people recognized this festival, and and it says that that the nation of Israel had not done this since the days of Joshua. Now if you think about it, Joshua uh, was with them in the wilderness, and he was the one that led them into the promised land. So would it seem that for a few years there, while Joshua was with the people, they recognized this feast, the Feast of Booths, and then perhaps maybe after Joshua died, uh, the people stopped doing it. And so since the time of Joshua, they had not done this. So the people read the book of the law, they see, we're supposed to be doing this. Let's do it. So for seven days, they do the feast. They continue every day to read the book of the law together. On the eighth day, the Lord had commanded them at the, at the end of the feast that they were to have a solemn day. Um, and so they recognized that as well. And so the people had heard the word. They understood it. They had allowed it to change their hearts. And immediately, they began to put it into practice. They said, this is what the Lord has commanded us to do. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. So what happens next? So it's been like 24 days that the people have been gathering together, reading the book of the law together. They had recognized this feast that they were supposed to do and it's come to the end. You would think maybe they would think, oh, okay, this, is, this has been great. Let's return back home to our normal lives. Uh, we've understood the law. Uh, we've done it. Um, let's, let's get on with life. But they don't stop there. If we look at the beginning of chapter 9, the 24th day, the day after they're done with this, this feast, they gather together again. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of the month, 
The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. So the people come together in sackcloth, there we go, and ashes in fasting and they're mourning. They come to the Lord and they come in repentance. It says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all of the foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So the people gather together in repentance to the Lord. They gather together and they stood and they confessed their sins and their iniquities to God. Verse 3, and it says, And they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter they confessed and they worshipped the Lord of God. So one quarter plus one quarter is what? One half. half. So for half the day, I don't know if this is half of the daylight day, whether this is six hours, or if it's half of the literal day, whether it's 12 hours. But either way, it's a long time. The people had come together and they continue to read the the Word of God. And then for three to six hours, they just worship together. They worship the Lord and they repent before Him. And then they go on to to talk about all that the Lord had done for them, how He had been faithful to them and how they had been unfaithful. Verse 5, it says that they stood up and they blessed the Lord or, or they... The Levites say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You are the Lord alone. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that are in them. You preserved all of them and the host of the heavens worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And so they worship the Lord. They gather together and they worship the Lord. And for the next number of verses in chapter 9, they account to how God has been faithful to the nation of Israel. All that God has done to them. How He chose Abraham and how He made a covenant with him. How He delivered the people from Pharaoh and the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea so that they could go through and how He led them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and how He had given them the law of Moses on Sinai and done great signs and wonders there, how He had provided for them. He sent them bread from heaven, manna, and water from rocks, and that He had given them the promised land and had made them into a great nation. But in verse 26, they say, Nevertheless, talking about themselves, their people. It says, They were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard, from, heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. And so we're, we're familiar with this cycle that we see through the, throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel 
following God and then following away from God and then the Lord warning them and then, then most often not responding and then Him punishing them and then being in captivity and then the Lord... Uh, and then them crying out to God and then the Lord sparing them and they go through this cycle a number of times and they say, despite how unfaithful we were to you, we turned our backs to you time and again. Our fathers threw your law behind their back. Every time they cried out, you show your great mercies and give them saviors to save them from the hands of their enemies. In verse 30 he says, Many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and a merciful God. Lord, despite how many times this happened, to how many times the nation turned from you, you didn't just obliterate them. You have sustained them despite the fact that they forsook you because you are a gracious and a merciful God. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Here's the people's response. He says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps the covenant of steadfast love? Let not let not all the leadership seem let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. They're saying, Lord, don't get us wrong. All that calamity, the hardships that you have brought on us since the Assyrians took Judah into captivity until this day, it hasn't been a small thing. It's been a tremendous hardship. You have dealt heavily with us. But verse 33, they say, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, for we have acted wickedly. Despite how hard this has been, how huge this has been that you have brought upon your nation, you have been just. This is what we have deserved because we are wicked and you are righteous. Verse 34, it says, So our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in our own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you had gave them, and in the large and the rich land that you had set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in our land that you, have, that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Even this day, they say, we are slaves in our own land because we have been wicked. Verse 37, And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They cry out to the Lord, Lord, you have dealt justly with us. Our people deserve what you have done. And even to this day, we are still seeing the consequences of the sins of our fathers. 
We are in captivity, even though we are in our own lands, even though we have rebuilt our temple, we have rebuilt our, our, our walls, we have rebuilt our homes, we are still under the rule of another man. The crops that we produce, the best of them go to him. All that we have and are belongs to another king. We were in great distress. And so the people decide right there that they want to renew their covenant with God. They recognize that God had set up this covenant with Abraham and that throughout all of these years, God had remained faithful to that covenant. Every step of the way, even though the people had not been faithful, had not obeyed the law, God had remained faithful. And so right here and right now, the people said, we are going to make a covenant. We are going to renew this covenant. Verse 38, they say, Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of the princes and the Levites and the priests. And they come together and they, they make this, this new covenant. And they, they talk about all the Levites and the priests who signed this covenant. And the people come and they sign this covenant. And they, they, um, they want to renew this relationship with God. In in chapter 10, verse 29, it says that their desire is this. It says that they joined with their brothers and their nobles to enter in uh, to this curse and to an oath to walk with God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commands that the the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. So they gather together and they, they say we're, gonna, we're going to write on this covenant that we want to renew this relationship. Lord, your law has been given to us and we decide this day that we want to follow it. We want to observe all that you have commanded. We want to obey it. So I think we see a true revival in the nation of Israel. And this revival was centered around the Lord's law, the word of the Lord. They had heard the word. They had received it. They had understood it. They allowed it to change them, to renew their hearts and their minds. Immediately, they put it into action. They say, right here, right now, we see that the Lord says to do this, and we can do it. So they do it. And then finally they say, let's commit to continue to obey the word of the Lord. We don't want to forsake it like our forefathers have done. We want to renew this covenant. God has remained faithful and God, we want to be a faithful people. We want to obey what you have said. I think the application here for us is pretty clear. Um, I think we can understand how this can be applied to our own lives. The Word of God is, is powerful and it's evident to see that and how it has changed the nation of Israel. That for days they, they gathered and read the, the words of the Lord. And they allowed it to change them. And they sought to obey it. 
Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This, is bo- this book is not just any book. God says that it is living and active. This book is powerful. It can transform your life. It can transform our church. And it can transform this world and has. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the literal words of God. He says that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent fully understanding what the Lord wants him to do, and that he may be equipped for every good work. This this Word, the Word of God, if we read it, if we know it, and if we understand it, allow us to know what God wants in our lives. Allow us to be equipped to live out that in our lives. The Word of God is powerful. And we need to desire it like the, like the nation of Israel. We need to allow it to change our hearts and our minds. We need to allow it to bring us to our knees in repentance as it did the children of Israel. To bring us to an, a place of awe before our Lord and our God. To recognize that just as to the Israelites He had been faithful time and time again, He has done that for us as well. Despite the fact that we are sinners and that we continually reject Him, we turn our back on Him, that we choose the world and the things of the world over Him, He remains faithful to us. He continues to pour out His grace and His mercy upon us. And that we need to obey His Word. That we need to put it into action into our lives. Allowing it to mold and shape who we are and how we think and how we live. <clears throat> Psalms 119.11 is, is a verse that the Lord has just been pounding upon me this, this entire year. Um, and He's continuing to pound it upon me because I still haven't gotten it. And it says... Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Earlier this year, um, the Lord had brought me to a point of, of, of repentance and awe of Him. And I said, Lord, how do I conquer sin in my life? And immediately He brought this verse to my head. And He continues to do so um, because I haven't done what it says yet. But I, I want to. The, uh, the ESV says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I feel like the Lord was saying, Justin, if you want victory in your life over sin, it's found in my word. But you have to be filled with it. That idea of stored up um, this weekend made me think of like a pirate storing up treasure. I mean, you've all seen the movies and they open that room on the, on the ship and it's just mounded with treasure. He's just storing it up 
stealing it from everyone, and it's got it mounted in this room. Or the idea of a squirrel also came to mind, gathering his nuts together, storing them up for winter. He's not going to eat them all right there and then, is he? But he's storing them up, and when the time comes that he needs them, they're there. And that's what we have to do with the Word of God. When the time comes in our lives that we need the Word of God to give us victory, to make us know what the right choice is, to say no to sin and say yes to God, it'll be there because we have stored it up within our hearts, within our lives and within our minds. This book is powerful. This book is the story of God's revelation of Himself to man. From the first page to the last page, it is the story of how the God of creation has made us and revealed Himself to us, has sought us day after day, thousands of years. First to the nation of Israel, He chose them, and now to to all who will receive Him. He has shown Himself faithful. He has shown Himself as great and mighty and awesome, and yet loving and merciful and gracious. And He has shown us how much He loves us by sending His Son to redeem us. In the garden, He had created man and woman, and they were together, and everything was perfect, and they were with God. But they sinned. They rejected God. And we know the story. And from there, it's been a sad story ever since of how man has turned from God. Until, as Scripture says, at the right time, God sent His Son into the world. Christ, the Son of God, God Himself became flesh and He took the sins of the world upon Him so that we might have life, so that we might be free. So we must be continually captivated by this story to understand the power of this story in our lives. I mean, we all... We all love a good story, don't we? I do. You guys love a good story? I mean, I remember the first time I read through the Narnia series. How many of you have have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Those are great books, aren't they? I love them. Um, I'm I'm not the greatest literary mind out there. My wife kind of makes fun of me sometimes. The books I like are typically somewhere around the like sixth to eighth grade reading level. Um, so, uh, but I, I love a good story. And I remember the first time I read through the Chronicles of Narnia and the last battle was the first time in my life. And I think the only time since that I had actually sat down and read an entire book in one day. And if you know me, that's a huge task because I'm not a very good reader. I read very slow. I actually learned, um, a few months ago that I might be dyslexic, which I never knew, which is kind of interesting. But I remember sitting down and reading the entire book in one day because I wanted to know the story. And yet, I've tried over the years and I have to some extent read those books again because they're really good. But there's, there's something about reading a story for the first time, isn't there? That it's captivating. You don't know what's going to happen. You want to know what happens next and you just can't put it down. And even, even if it's a great story, the next time around, it's just not as 
not as great as the first time, is it? And so we can only read a, a good story so many times. And sometimes that's how I feel like I've treated the Word of God. Like it's just some ordinary story. And that I've heard it so many times that it's become predictable and mundane to me. But we must recognize that this isn't just some other story. That this is the greatest story. That it is, it's the story of mankind. It's the story of how God has revealed Himself to us. It is a powerful and living and active story. And it's continuing to this day. The story is not over. We are in the midst of the story. It is happening right now. And the future is to come. We even know what's going to happen. And we can look forward to that. But we must, we must be obsessed with this story. We must allow this, this, this word, the law, the words of God to transform our lives. I truly, truly believe that the Lord has been teaching me this year that if I want victory in my Christian life, this is where it's found, in His Word. And I need you guys to help me with that because I've known it for a long time, but I'm still not doing it. And I need you guys to keep me accountable and to challenge me. And we need to do things like, um, like tonight the women are meeting to study the Word together. Monday night the men meet together to study the Word together. We need to do that stuff. We need to be getting together one-on-one, encouraging one another, reading the Word together. We need to be memorizing You guys have heard that a lot. I think the Lord has really pressed upon a lot of our hearts here in the church that we need to commit His Scripture to memory. And and the Lord has laid upon my heart this week that I think that we need to set up some type of thing for all of us together to be accountable. That perhaps we have a verse or a passage every week that we memorize together and that we have accountability partners to make sure that we're doing that and to recite to one another. I haven't talked to this to the leaders yet, but I think they'll probably be on board, but I'd love to see us do something like that. Because this word, if we're committed to it, I truly believe will transform our lives and transform this church. Because it's not just any book. 